square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome, folks. Steve Fielder here one more time with you on the Gone to the Dogs podcast. And we're down here in Orangeburg, South Carolina for the Grand American Coon Hunt. This thing has been going on since either 1966 or possibly 65. I know I was through here in 66, and I think that was the first one, but I could be wrong. It may have been the second one. But at any rate, uh, here in Orangeburg, we had a beautiful day today, although kind of cold for, I guess, well, it's January in South Carolina, so we should expect some cold weather. But no snow this year. I've been to the Grand American a few times when it snowed, and it definitely was not that today. We had clear skies. We had a, a nice day for people to get out and visit the vendors and to go to the dog shows and to uh, go through the dog barns and look at the stud dogs and all the things that uh, make Grand American such a great place to be and and uh, something that's really been a tradition for coon hunters now for, for gee, that's, let's see, 40, 60 some years probably. So, but really happy uh, this week for the podcast to bring to the mic a friend of mine that I've known for quite a long time. Met him back in my UKC days. Um, I know uh, he's been very closely associated with the blue tick breed for all you blue tick lovers out there and uh, i'm gonna let him tell his story today and and try to keep my own chat to a minimum but i'm very very happy to welcome to the microphone mr mark Hauk. how are you doing mark i'm doing fine steve and thank you for having me oh well it's my pleasure for sure um, we've been bumping into each other a little bit since retirement years and yep. all that i I finally gave up the futile attempts that I made to to uh, keep coon hunters in line over the year, <laughs> and I retired in 2011. When uh, tell us a little bit about your background of your your work? Uh, what what have you done, Mark? I know, but I want my listeners to know. Well, uh, I spent 23 years in the United States Army, um, all of them at Fort Bragg. Um, I did 10 years in the 82nd Airborne. and That's uh, those guys that jump out of perfectly good airplanes, uh, right? Yes, we do. <laughs> C-130s, 141s, helicopters. Um, so Yeah, God bless you. <laughs> uh, I loved it. And, um, and when I first went in, my recruiter thought I was nuts for wanting to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> yeah. But my grandfather yeah. was the one that initiated that into me um uh, part of the uh 82nd airborne in world war ii and market garden and saint mary gleese and nijmegen normandy so uh, i went into the 82nd was assigned to the 504th parachute infantry regiment and uh, after 10 years uh had made e7 at nine years Got a little bored. And, That's uh, making it, brother. Well, back in those days, you got promotion points for semester hours. Oh, okay. So I was going to school at night when a lot of my buddies were going downtown Fayetteville yeah. <laughs> to the undescribed bars. <laughs> I got you. I got you. So 
I earned my associate's degree and uh, it really helped me in promotions because, you know, you have, you know, 84 semester hours. Well, I got 84 promotion points. So, yeah, I zipped through to E5, then E6, and then E7 and held positions of platoon sergeant. Uh, I did a stint at about eight months of as, as a first sergeant. Mm. And uh, I kind of saw my career kind of not really going anywhere further when I, in the 82nd. So I did the next best thing. I went over and ended up in 7th Special Forces Group. The, uh, the Green Beret group. Yeah. So I did six years with seventh group. And then I had the opportunity to go behind a fence in special operations. It was called USASOC, the United States Army Special Operations Command. You know, got to have that short acronym for them <laughs> long names. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah. in people don't really, you tell them that and they're like, what is that? And then you'd say, well, it's the old Delta force. And they're like, Oh yeah, I know what that is. So, yeah. uh, I did five years with them and, uh, came out on the command sergeant majors list a couple of times. And I was a little short. And, uh, then when I did come out and I was going to get promoted, they didn't have a spot for me. So the only place I could go was Korea. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to be a 37-year-old command sergeant major. And the average age of a first sergeant in the second ID was like 46, 47. And I was like, yeah, they're going to really listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I was like, ah. But then talking over with my wife, I was like, well, maybe I'll go because it was only a one-year tour. But. I asked them, I said, well, when I finish my tour, will I come back to the soft community? Because I like being in special forces and special mm -hmm. ops. And they were like, well, no, because you're be a command sergeant major. You'll go where the Army needs you. And I was like, so I could end up in Texas in, you know, an office working on AFES stuff. And AFES is like, you know, where we got our, you know, commissary stuff and all mm -hmm. that. And they're like, yeah, you could be. And I'm like, nah, <laughs> no, no, that's not for me. So I put in my retirement paperwork and uh, I got a message to report to General Scott. And General Scott was the commander of JFK Center. And that's all the schools that run for the special forces and special ops from sniper school Halo school, scuba school. I mean, all the schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I looked around the team room and I was like, okay, what did you guys do? I mean, how many <laughs> times do you get called to a two stars office? Not many other than though I did a couple times, but I reported and general Scott looked at me and said, how'd you like to do me a favor? And I'm like, uh, sure, sir. You know, what's an E eight going to tell a two star? No. <laughs> and, uh, he told me what he needed. He needed an NCIC for the Halo School. And I was a senior jump master and senior jump for Halo because I sport jumped on the weekends too. Okay, I'm going to, for those of my listeners, and I've had Courtney Risk on here before. Okay. You know Courtney. Yes, I, I do. And, of course, that Halo thing was uh, was his gig too. Briefly explain what that is. Well, it's high altitude, low opening. Um, you might go up to 
you know, 12,500 feet jumping with oxygen. You know, once you get to 12,000 and higher, you jump with oxygen, but you could jump out at 8,000 feet or 7,000 feet. But it's basically what you see on TV where people are free falling Mm -hmm. and then you open your chute and it's a, a square chute. So you might have a five cell, seven cell or a nine cell. And that's the number of tubes I'm holding, making a zero in the chute for the air to pass through. Hmm. So if you have a five cell, you're going to move very quickly. And if you have a wider one, like the seven cell, you're going to go slower, but you'll cover more ground. Hmm. So, you know, you can do high ho jumps, which means you can jump out at, you know, 10,000 feet and pop your chute right then and just, you know, fall for a long time under canopy. So, that's what the halo is. I get you. Okay. A sneaky way of getting into places without nobody knowing you're there. <laughs> I got you. And uh, so I was like, sure. And um, so I told him, I said, well, sir, I put in my retirement. He said, I can extend you. And I'm like, okay. I said, can you do that? And he pointed to his two stars on his <laughs> collar and he said, I can do it. And I was like, okay. So he did. And, uh, the best 18 months probably of my career I ever had. I truly loved it. Awesome. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. Well, that's great. So then you, re- after that 18 months, you retired. I retired. Okay. So then what What did you do? What does a guy do that's been in, in the military that long? I mean, is, is there really a culture shock in getting back into well, civilian life, or does it transition fairly easy? Not for me, because I went to work for a company called Blackwater. Mm. And that was an overseas private contractor. Mm-hmm. So I did security work for them. And they, back in that time, 99, 2000, they paid extremely well. Mm-hmm. Put my daughter through college. Yeah, well, good, good, good. <laughs> but uh, when I got done with that, uh, we packed up and moved to northern Illinois, Stockton, Illinois. My brother lived up there, my dad, my mom, my sister. And my brother worked for Anheuser-Busch, and he had some friends that worked for a company for Pabst. And Mm. I went up and interviewed, and I got the job, so I became a Pabst rep. Why don't you get me a beer sponsorship? (laughs) (laughs) I I understand beer's not selling that well right now. (laughs) Pabst is. (laughs) Pabst is like the number one draft beer in Nashville. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) but uh so i went to work for them and um we handled probably close to a thousand different beers and i became very knowledgeable on i thought you were going to say an alcoholic no (laughs) i became very knowledgeable on beers and i went to a lot of classes and i studied and uh i had a northwestern illinois i had a great territory i had some fantastic customers uh, I did a lot of beer tastings and things like that. Uh, up in Galena, Illinois, we had the, a great, the called the Great Galena Balloon Race, our big hot air balloons. Oh, yeah. And we would set up uh, tasting tables when they were going up in the air with those things. And we might have two, 3,000 people come through to taste beers. I know my emails are going to increase considerably here. Guys asking, how do I get a job like that? <laughs> well, you know, I I was very lucky to get in, but um, the lady who was in charge of hiring me, she knew my brother, 
even though he worked for the competitor. But I think there was like 10 people that interviewed for this job. And I got the the gift of gab from my father. Mm. At least my mother said that. I got you. And my daughter will tell you that I can sell refrigerators and deep freezes to Eskimos. I got you. So uh, that being military, a little bit older than some of the younger people coming in. So I was a little more mature. Um, of course, insurance on the vehicle, the company vehicle was mm. going to be cheaper because I was, you know, older. over 30. <laughs> yeah. I guess. So that was a... Yeah. We did beer, we did wine, and then we uh, expanded in the spirits. So I sold, mm-hmm. you know, oh. vodkas, rums. I, we did like eight different wines or, or wine companies. So yeah. I became very familiar with, you know, explaining wines to people, how most people start off with like sweet wines. Oh, yeah. And then their palate changes, and then they go to a semi-dry and then their palate changes again, and they go to a dry wine, mm-hmm. you know, like a Merlot or a Pinot Noir. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Okay, as although I love wine, and I'd love to yep. talk about wine with you all night. That'd be fun. But this is a coonhound podcast. Gotcha. So I got to get back on track. Okay. But very interesting, Mark. Very interesting. Okay, so you get out. All right, so let's rewind the tape okay. here. How did you get interested in Coonhound? When I was probably seven years old, uh, my grandfather lived in Sardinia, Ohio, where I live now. And my grandfather hunted blue tick Coonhounds. Um, my grandpa and Uncle Peeny Miller and Uncle Vic Hook, Vic had tricolor, Peeny had red ticks. And my grandfather had blue ticks. Of course, back Mm -hmm. then, they didn't, registered papers to them didn't, they kept their own pedigrees. Yeah. And they bred, every year, they bred the best male to the best female. And if they came out red colored, Peeny got them. If they came out tricolor, Vic got them. And if they came out blue tick, my grandpa got them. And... I fell in love with it the first time I went coon hunting with them. And it was just an addiction from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was maybe nine years old, staying at my grandpa's for uh, a couple of weeks during the summer, helping do tobacco and stuff like that. I wanted to go coon hunt one night. He's like, oh, I'm too tired. So he said, well, here, you want to go? And he handed me the light, handed me the 22 and like 10 shells. And he said, go. And the dogs, you could walk out with the lantern and they would come out of the milk barn because they could smell the kerosene. And they knew they were going coon hunting. I mean, <laughs> you do that nowadays with dogs, they'd be gone. <laughs> yeah. But they laid in that barn and they'd come around and you know mess around in the yard. But they didn't run off and run to the woods. They stayed in the barn. But you come out with that kerosene lantern and they smelled it, they knew they were going hunting. Yeah. No collars, no leashes. You just told them, hey, you know, heal. And they'd walk along with you. And then you got close to the woods and you'd pat them on the side and say, hunt them up. And they'd take off to the woods, strike tree. Well, I kept going and going and going and they got worried about me and. Next thing I know, my grandfather was driving around in his truck looking for me, (laughs) found me. I was like three farms over 
And uh, I just, I loved blue tick coonhounds. I had one in high school. Um, used to go coon hunting, tree one or two coons on a Friday night back, you know, in the early 70s. And you were getting 35, oh, 40, yeah. f- sometimes $50 if they were a jumbo. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then when I went in the military, I was on a, you know, a stall there, couldn't coon hunt because I lived in the barracks. Yeah. And then when I made E5, I got put in the position where I had to go off post. Mm-hmm. So I rented a place that I could have a dog. And I went looking and I met some people. I went to the local coon club, <clears throat> which was then in North Carolina, Rayford, Rockfish Creek Coon Club, a club that I was president of years later. But I found a guy that had a blue tick. I bought her and started back into the hunts and the shows and everything else. Because my grandfather and my uncle, Ed, um, for Brown County Coon Hunters in Sardinia, I think it was like 10 years in a row they won the club championship. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting. When you talk about North Carolina and you talk about blue ticks, and there's so many names come to mind. We used to call them the the, uh, uh, blue tick mafia down there. The Zone 5 mafia. Uh, I know who you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And I I remember a lot of those guys. Let me me test my memory a little bit, and you tell me if if you – I know you know all these guys, no question about it. Carlton Rayner. Oh, yeah, Carlton. Yeah. Les Rogers. Yes. Junior Duncan. Yes. Uh, 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 oh, the guy from down around Wilson. Uh, uh, oh, Andy Powell and Torrance well, Wilkinson. Andy and Torrance Wilkinson. Torrance Wilkinson. Yeah, I'm a friend with Torrance on, the, on Facebook. Yep. Uh, Andy Powell, he's a chicken farmer, I think. Yep. Uh, and uh, all those guys, we called them the North Carolina Mafia. Yep. They were they were always at BBOA days. <laughs> yes, yeah. they were. Yeah, yeah, fun times. Well, that's cool. So then you um, you had that for those first experiences on the farm. There was it your grandparents' farm. My grandfather's farm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. How cool is that, growing up on a farm where you can just whistle up the dogs and go to the woods out the back door? Loved it. <laughs> it it's got, reminds me of the stories my dad told me about growing up on the farm in Tennessee with its cur dogs, he and his brother. And uh, they would do that. They, You know, at dark, uh, they'd get the rifle and the lantern. My dad told the story about when he, they first went hunting, uh, the parents would let them go but they weren't to go outside of the range of that lantern light. If the lan- if the if the parents couldn't see the lantern from the house, and the house sat on a hill, and there was a river bottom and the creek that went through, they had to stay within range. <laughs> that was when they were real little, right. you know. But oh, if if you know, kids could grow up that way today. That well. If they could grow up that way today, you wouldn't have, in my opinion, the problems you now see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, okay. So you then, when did you start having your own dogs and getting, did you get a cut of the puppies for for Mark? Well, no, but I got to hunt with them and I always got to play with them as pups. And then when we started training, I got to help my grandfather and my uncle Ed with that. 
my father, he went coon hunting a couple times, but he was not a coon hunter. Yeah. And, um, but my, the youngest brother, Ed, who's still alive and loves the coon hunt. Uh, we coon hunted a lot together. I used to come up from North Carolina and brag and bring my dogs and I would teach them to fence because we had, you know, it's all dairy farms. Yeah. But I taught my dogs to fence. And that way, when I would draw, come like come to Blue Tick Days in Ohio or come up to Autumn Oaks yeah. and stuff or Ashland, you know, mm-hmm. when the Blue oh, Tick yeah, hunt, no. yeah. I used to love it. They'd look at it and see me from, you know, oh, North Carolina. So they'd take me to some place with fences. fences and stuff. Didn't bother me any. Mine could clear a five-foot fence with no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you got to plan your work and work your plan, right? That's, That's it. That's right. Well, you're an interesting guy, Mark, and there's so many ways uh, I could could go here with with this time that you've uh, agreed to spend with me, and I appreciate it because I know you're taking your kids out to a Mexican restaurant. You yeah, said, they're trying to figure out where we're going to go. One, huh? <laughs> uh, family first, I always say, man, it's, it's great. But all right, so at some point in time. I guess, like I did, you decided that you wanted to get involved in coon hunting at the organized level. Was that for you just going to UKC night hunts? Yeah, and- I I remember I was I remember getting my first subscription to Coonhound Bloodlines. You know, back in the day, you had to have that if you wanted to know where the hunts were at. Yeah, so. You know, I subscribed to it, and I subscribed to Full Cry, and I subscribed to American Cooner, and, you know, I was just getting back, you know, wanting to get into the hunts and everything, and I looked in the book, and I saw this blue tick hunt in Clarendon, North Carolina, and I went down. I've been to that club. Yep, and it was old Junior Duncan. Yeah. And Carlton Rainer. The and man Les in Rogers. the little black hat. I yep. always remember Junior, that little fedora. Yeah, you always wore that little fedora, <laughs> Earl Christmas and all them. Oh, mm, yeah. And uh, I went down there and I showed and they came, Junior come up to me and he's like, you know, he had that, you know, non-filtered cigarette in his hand <laughs> and that little, little yeah. hat on. He said, uh, 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 boy, he said, uh, you need to join BBOA if you got a blue tick. And I looked at him. I said, I think my grandfather belonged to that back in like the 60s. I'm like, what's it entail? And they went to talking to me. And next thing I know, Carlton was there talking to me. And then Les was there talking to me. And then Earl Christmas was talking. And, you know, Mike Hall and all those guys from down that area. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll join. (laughs) I give up. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it was it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people. And uh, the more I competed in it and saw events like up around uh, Eno River, you know, Gary, oh, yeah. Gary, mm-hmm. Gary Carter and mm-hmm. J.J. Callahan and oh, yeah. Craig Cooper and all them yeah, guys. Yeah. You know, I went up there and that was great coon hunting up in that area. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to experience some of that when I was with AKC in Raleigh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. May, went to all those clubs. And yeah. Burlington and all oh, of them. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I really, you know, I met some outstanding people, Don Bowles, yeah. Wayne Baker, and then someone who became my mentor, which Everett Dalton. Oh, yeah. 
you know, in the foothills of Rutherford, the Blue Ridge Virginia. Parkway there in Galax, Virginia. Yeah, around the hills of the old Galax. And uh, Everett kind of became like a second father to me. And he always had us up to the house and mm-hmm. give me a little relaxation time when I'd come back from a deployment or something. And, you know, I bought that immaculate little red brick house, if I recall. He did. And then he moved up on the hill. Okay. And he had a nice little wooden house, and he had okay. like ten acres, and he had the dogs he all had his st- beagles. Too. Yeah, oh, he loved beagles. Yeah, he would come out on really the porch with a guy. coffee, turn them beagles puppies loose, and he had rabbits everywhere. Yeah, and they would just start running. He'd just sit there and listen to them, drink his coffee, and when he got tired, he'd call them. Oh, oh, and they'd all come running back. And he'd walk back out to the kennel and yeah. put them up. He was a great guy. Great but guy. I got a chance to travel. To a lot of hunts uh, with Jim Myers, yeah, who, who owned the Smoky Two Dog. Yeah, Jim um, did me a favor one time. He hauled a dog all the way to Texas for me. Okay, yeah, yep. yeah, he was a, a good, good guy too. I traveled to a lot of hunts with Jimmy Carol Watson. We went to like Texas to the Blue Tick Days mm-hmm. in '91. Ernie Golding up in Virginia. Uh, I got a chance to serve. I, I became a a board of director for zone five okay. and BBOA. Yeah. And I did four years and, you know, I had to laugh one year we were up in Van Wert, Ohio for the blue tick reunion when Tom Bradley and Emmett blue. Rohard oh. went together to put it the on together. Oh, okay. One yeah. represented BBOA, the yeah. other one represented BBCHA. And I went to lunch with Dave Nelson Oh, yeah. You remember Dave? Very well. What a character. (laughs) He was. And we were eating lunch, and he kind of leaned over at me. He said, what's your ambitions in the blue tick breed, boy? And I looked at him, and I said, you know what, Dave? I said, one day I'm going to be president of this organization. (laughs) And he said, well, he said, that's a, a lofty goal. And through my years of hunting and traveling and going to Missouri and Illinois and Indiana and Pennsylvania and all over the South, um, both hunting and competing. Cause I was fortunate. I mean, there was at one time I had four dual grand blue tick females in my kennel mm. and, uh, Everett Dalton gave me half ownership in his female. That was, he called Dixie and that was Smokey two's litter mate sister. Mm. Everett put her in one hunt RQE one first place. And never put her in anything ever again. I got her when she was like five years old, finished her to night champion, finished her to grand show champion, won queen of the hunt at several blue tick events in Virginia and North Carolina. So through my travels, both hunting, judging shows and master hounds at shows, uh, I just decided and, you know, a lot of people that I knew approached me and in 2000, I ran for president, and I won. And I was president until I handed it over to Mike Hayworth in 2010. And uh, we, I think, was probably our most prosperous 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had hunts like on Friday nights where we had 225, 230 dogs. I mean, which was unheard of in the blue tick breed and unheard of now. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. That, you know, when I went to UK, I didn't know very much about 
the uh, breed associations except the plot association. And I served as president of that for a couple of years. We had a, a two-year limit, t- mm-hmm. a term limit, uh, two-term, and you're out. You go on the board. Right. <clears throat> and uh, and then when I was a director, when Fred Miller hired me to come to UKC, so I had to resign my re- directorship there and all. But that was the only association that I really knew anything about. But as I went to work for UKC, then I began to work closely with all the the association, and that was back in 1983 when I when I uh, uh, you know went there, and uh, uh, so I learned though right away that there was a couple of breeds. Uh, that had more than one association. Uh, usually there was one, you know, per breed, and that was the chartered group for UKC, which being chartered by UKC meant you had certain privileges. You got to move your breed this, uh, days around, you know, where you wanted indiscriminately, you know, but, uh, without or without worrying about date conflicts and all that. That was one thing. You got to have a seat on the rules committee. And there's been some changes since I was there, but it used to be that the Breed Association charter controlled the breed standard. And some some of that has kind of changed a little bit, I think. A little. So, um, I think now you can submit stuff and UKC will look at it, but I, they still take it to the Breed Association. Do they? Yep, That's they good. still take it to them. Yeah. They have the... I guess say on it, you know, the membership has to vote on it whether yeah, they want yeah. to change something. Right. Um, well, that was pretty much why I was at UKC. Fred Miller was the owner, and he was very uh, much about that, let, having the members decide, you know, those things. But anyway, the point I wanted to make is I learned that, lo and behold, the Blue Ticks had two associations. And the Red Bones had two associations, and they each held UKC licensed events, but one was chartered and one was not. Mm-hmm. And, and in the case of Blue Ticks, the BBOA that you mentioned, Blue Tick Breeders of America, was the chartered group. Yes. And that organization was really neat in my mind how they conceived all these zones and developed the zone concept. And you guys were pretty much on your own on that as far as breed associations were concerned uh, to divide the country up into individual zones. How did that work a little bit? Well, when um, Doc Furnham approached yeah. Blue Tickers, um, he wanted something set up to where Blue Tickers throughout the United States would be recognized and represented. Uh, at the time, before BBOA was formally established uh there was another uh blue tick breeders and coon hunters association but they were mostly in the west right you know oklahoma arkansas texas Mm -hmm. and doc farnham wanted something that would be nationwide yeah and so when double o grant Mm -hmm. uh who was our first secretary and treasurer and set things up he actually wrote our standards for the blue tick coon hound, uh, they came up and decided decided they would break the country up by zones. And the zones would have their own 
board of directors, and they would have a chairman, vice chairman, and their own secretary and treasurer. And what encompassed was they would act independently of the national organization. And to this day, I mean, we've gone from five zones to seven zones to six zones, but they still, to this day, have their own bank accounts. They've got three board of directors. When they have a national meeting or a national event, they have a voting process. And But the, the zones, the chairman, which would be, I guess, equivalent to like a president mm-hmm. and a vice chairman, a vice president, and a secretary and treasurer. Like when we were in North Carolina, zone five, which consists of North Carolina, Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee. And that makes up zone five. Mm-hmm. And it's still that way to this day. Yeah. Uh, where we're at here in South Carolina is part of zone six. That's Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi. So, I mean, each zone yeah. is in a geographic area and they operate independently and um it has served its purpose for many many years yeah this is a great plan and i i guess i should have known but i didn't realize that oh grant was the one that set that up yeah double o grant wrote our standards and uh yeah he was uh old guys like me will remember him and his writings and full cry and so forth and oh yeah yeah, big time yeah he liked the bigger blue ticks. He, you know, and it's amazing that he had those bigger all blue dogs, yeah. but he wrote the standard, and his dogs didn't even meet the standard because <laughs> they were bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but he looked at the generalization yeah. of yeah. the blue tick coonhound, right. and he was like, you know, he, I'm not going to write it for me. I'm going to write it yeah. for the blue tick coonhound, and that's the kind of leadership you need, you know, and. Try to keep the well, Steve. The, back in them days, blue tick days rotated year to year from zone to zone, right? That so, was the way it was when I, yeah, I was when you there. well, I remember in '83, and you know, uh-huh. when I first met you, yeah. blue tick days would rotate from zone to zone, right? And it worked great for many years. And when C.W. Elridge came in as president, we noticed that when we would come from the midwest and we would come south our numbers would start to drop Hmm. and zone five numbers would go down then you go to zone six numbers would go down and when you went to zone seven like texas oklahoma numbers went down even more and we figured it out that you know um a lot of Yankee guys don't like hunting around snakes. <laughs> hey, it took yeah. me a while to hunt with them when I was in North Carolina. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. So think about me in Florida. Oh, <laughs> now they got pythons down there. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, our president for our new organization, Steve Burkholder, lives down there by yeah. in Ocala or Cala. Ocala. And yeah. he's like Mark. He goes. Ah, uh, he goes. I see snakes on the golf course and everywhere. He goes, oh, I don't want to coon hunt down here. And I was That's like, right. I wouldn't coon hunt down yeah, there. Yeah. Well, yeah, that would be a, a whole podcast of why Why would a coon hunter move to Florida? Yeah. People well, ask me that all the time. I tell them, it's one thing, a woman. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> My <laughs> wife, was. Uh, she and I both are second marriages and 
And and I've told our story on here before. We were high school sweethearts and didn't see each other for nearly 40 years and ended up getting back together. And she was in Florida and I was in North Carolina and that long distance relationship was not working out. Yes. So I, I made the noble choice. There you go. Say, your grandchildren are in Florida. You need to be by <laughs> your grand. But I think there was probably a little influencing going on there. But, yeah, well, it, it's very interesting. And, of course, with the Redbone people, they have managed to make two associations work. They have their the national is their charter group, and then the American Redbone is, is uh, the other group, and they have uh, – uh, you know, their own breed days and all of that. Well, stuff. a lot but, of people don't realize this, but the treeing walker has three. Well, yeah, they really do. With I mean, the, you've got your national treeing walker association, yeah. Southeastern treeing walker yeah, association, that's that's and true. then you have your Southwestern yeah. treeing association. Uh -huh. So yeah, there's room for a lot of people. And we, a group of us decided that, we wanted something different. We didn't want the the typical politics and you know the arguing back and forth and all that stuff. Why did we do that? I don't you know. know. I'm, Jealousy, maybe it's part of it, and it's ego. It's we could talk about all the reasons, and sometimes I think we just as human beings we just like to argue for the sake of arguing, uh, but. You know, we're strongest when we work together. That's know? true, but I always used to tell everybody, Steve, there is a there is some strength in competition because it makes you have to do better. Yeah, without a doubt. Having been in a position where I was with UKC and I was a UKC guy. I mean, I was a UKC guy to the bone. As opportunities open for me, and I had to look at career choices and what's best for me and my family and all these things. I chose, you know, to go different directions. Mm -hmm. I worked for three different registries. Uh, but I know what that in each of those cases, you know, when I was at UKC, I was looking over my shoulder at PKC. What are those guys doing? What are they doing? That's a good idea. You know, I, you know, and I've been always very competitive, as I know you have, and I always wanted us to be number one. Oh, yeah. Know? So then I go to PKC, you know, and then, you know, you see these things creeping in like CHKC, which was there for a little while, and it, it went away and all. And now you see the pro sport group coming in, and there's, there's they're Coon Hunters organization, but they're different. I guess when I said strength in numbers and all that, I mean, once we decide which flavor we want to be, we still need to be part of the of the banana split or the Sunday. We need to be a part of the the big dessert. Well, it, but it, it's fine to be strawberry and you be chocolate and somebody else be vanilla. That's correct. a crazy analogy, but. That's what comes to mind to me. And they yeah. used to talk about combining the two blue tick associations that are out there. And, you know, even the years when I was president, I'd be like, folks, and I sat down with the our blue book and their blue book, and 75, 80% of the members were dual members. Yeah. They joined both because both had a book, 
both some people like if you were in Missouri, you're going to join BBOA and BBCHA because some of their hunts were very close to you there mm-hmm. in the Missouri area. Yeah. And blue tick hunts were strong in yeah. Missouri and Iowa and Illinois. And so, you well, know. you know, from my standpoint, don't mean to interrupt you, but from my standpoint, and we're talking blue ticks here, there were very distinct differences between BBOA and BBCHA in the cultures of those associations, okay? BBOA was, in my view, more oriented toward the competition hunter. BBCHA was more uh, oriented toward the good old boy. You know, I remember going to Hope, Arkansas and going to uh, the Blue Tick Fall Roundup and Mm -hmm. the old gentleman, I wish I could remember his name, he brought me a plate of fried catfish and hush puppies and coleslaw, and it was so good. And he said, boy, those fish slept last night in the White River. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just that, you know, that kind. Then you go to BBCHA and your competition juices start flow. I mean, BBOA, excuse me, I misspoke. Go to BBOA, I can remember at National Blue Tick Days at Wilson, North Carolina, and my good friend Torrance Wilkinson, he'll probably forgive me for this or not. You know, Flor- Torrance, he could get the fire bubbling. You oh, know? yes. And, and there was some kind of a – Fred Miller used to laugh about this, and I don't know if Torrance remembers this or not. But Torrance, Torrance could get in the front of the room and get some kind of a controversy going – and it would be back and forth, and the guys, you know, debating this thing. And Torrance would be back at the back door talking about yep. hot rod cars. Turn around and walk right out and <laughs> not miss a beat. <laughs> uh, but, no, the the whole point is, and it was all great. I, I loved them both. But there was a different culture between those two associations. There is. And is that that's still that way, I imagine? Uh, maybe, I don't know. I mean— I see both of them putting on hunts and trying to put on more hunts. Uh, the reason we started our now let's do let's okay. stop. You've alluded to that a couple of times, and that's the meat of why I wanted to talk to you tonight. Okay. Is that there has now been a new blue tick, a third blue tick association? Correct. 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 All right. Let's break that down a little bit. Cool. What's the name of it? It is called the All-American Blue Tick Association. Okay. Uh, well, just for the sake of identification, who are the leaders? Well, our president is Steve Burkholder, who okay. was my vice president uh, for four years when I was president in BBOA. Uh, most people, if they haven't been following competition hunting, uh, they obviously should know who Steve Burkholder is. Absolutely. Uh, placed in the world, won Perina, uh, placed in the world for PKC. I mean, Steve sure. is a very seasoned competition coon hunter. Absolutely. Uh, our vice president is Alan Bridges up in by Comer uh, or Lexington, real, Georgia. Yeah, roughly in the uh, Athens, Georgia area yep. up there. Uh, I'm the secretary and treasurer. My wife, Renee, is our membership chairman. And we have board of directors. Uh, we have, I'm just going to go north and come down. Okay. 
Uh, we have Darren Fackler from Michigan. Well-known name. Okay, and uh, we have uh, Charlie Wyatt and Mike Hayworth from Missouri. Okay. Uh, I've got uh, Dexter Watley from Texas. No, Dex very well. Uh, Steve Fussell and Brent Liscom from Georgia. Just to today. Uh, yeah. Charles Locklear and J.J. Callahan from North Carolina. Right. And Blake Lamford from... I don't know Blake. Blake's a young man and... Okay. Um, really has gotten into the blue ticks and competition hunt. He's a good friend of JJ's. Okay. And everybody should know JJ. JJ. Absolutely. One Perina. Um, yep. And the good part is, you know, we've got four past presidents of BBOA. We've got a secretary and treasurer who served 14 years in BBOA. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of vice presidents Mm-hmm. And several of the people I've just mentioned have been board of directors in BBA. Okay. Well, you certainly have got a, a all-star lineup of people there that I know and people that are experienced coon hunters. I think so. And I think you've kind of persuaded uh, Alan Bridges to kind of lean more toward the blue dogs than his English dogs. We're working on them, but, you know, <laughs> you can't take the English out of the blue tick guy uh, all the way. <laughs> no, no, that goes back to 46. That was – okay. Without going into a lot of details, why do we need a third a party, a well, third association? We, the people I just named, all felt that things were kind of going – in different directions, and they just didn't feel comfortable with it. Okay. And uh, they wanted something that kind of went back to what we originally started with back in, you know, like my times, when you know, the late 70s, early 80s, and good hunting, showing, sitting around the clubhouse, sharing stories, talking, fellowship, you know, enjoying ourselves instead of just rolling up, jumping out of a truck, enter, and then go hunt. Yeah. Uh, we want to kind of bring that nostalgic back so that some of these younger blue tick owners can learn a little bit of history. And, you know, I mentioned a lot of names, and they probably don't even know, you know, who Everett Dalton or Wayne Baker mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, Larry Jones. I mean, there's a lot mm-hmm. of people out there that have we've lost and their knowledge they passed on needs to be passed on to others Mm. and and another thing we wanted to do is is we are setting ourselves up to where a lot of these organizations you have to either pay the organization like per dog or a, a lump sum and we're not set up that way the club, when they have our hunts, they get to keep all of their bench show entries, all of their night hunt entries. We're set up to work with strong clubs because strong clubs have good turnouts. And we don't want to have a hunt with just 10 dogs at it. We want to have a hunt that's strong and a lot of people show up. So we've designed two tiers. We have a tier one and a tier two hunt. And on our tier two hunt, Steve, We've got to where any breed can hunt for the $500 added purse, and any breed can show for the $250 added purse. Hmm. And, yes, we still have the Blue Tick Awards, 
but we're wanting to bring and recognize all coon hounds. Hmm. I don't care if it's a walker dog or a plot dog or a red bone or a black and tan. I'd like to see 10 of each show up at a hunt. Mm-hmm. And this way, the club wins, we win, and the coon hunters win. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to do. We're wanting to bring that little bit of con- you know competitive spirit back, but we want to work with clubs and clubs are our success. There's what they they are what keeps us alive. And we can't nickel and dime them to death. Yeah. You know, they got to make th- a profit to keep the doors open and the lights on. Absolutely, and I think uh the average guy out there that just wants to go lay his entry fee on the table and hunt and go home forgets that. You know, in many cases that these things don't just happen, you know, and, and without those guides and without somebody to mow the grass and so, without somebody to sweep the clubhouse after the hunt and somebody to flip the burgers and all the things that it takes. But the, what they forget the most is there's a lot of overhead to maintaining a oh, coon yes. club. You know, that's Take the electric bill, for instance, is well, astronomical, and taxes, taxes, you know, and, and all of these things. And when you when there's nothing left, you know, and I, I don't mean to be slamming the red streets or the associations, but if the associations are pulling all that out or the registries are, those guys, all they can do maybe is hold raffles or something like that to try to earning money and, and like you say they are the backbone of the whole thing they keep it going yeah. and you know you if you look just like on your own home you've got the mortgage you've got insurance you've got your light bill your water bill all those things apply to a coon club yeah and unless they've been fortunate enough to pay off the note but then they still got taxes and upkeep yeah so you know it's you got to keep them solvent so that we can enjoy our hobby. And let's be honest, that's what this is all about. It's a hobby. It's a fun hobby that we enjoy. And showing and hunting dogs is something that, you know, there's not a large number of us that do that. And we've got to take care of each other to keep the sport alive and growing. Mm Mm-hmm. And you got to teach the young people what it's about. Right. Well, the clubs have always been the backbone of the sport and will continue to be so unless you've got a national registry of guides that you yeah. can just call up. Good or, luck with that. Know, <laughs> and say, Mark, we got want to send four, uh, four dogs out your way or are you doing anything tonight? You know, no, it requires that guy in that club calling those members. You're going to be there. We got the club. Remember, we got the UKC hunt Saturday night. We're going to need some guides. Can you guide? Yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes in any 
uh, coon hunting event. Oh yeah, it's like these guys down here that with walk-ons and all. They're going to be, you know, looking at about three hundred dogs in the woods tonight. Who's going to hunt the? Take those dogs to a place that's safe for the dogs that they can treat some coon. That you know that everybody's going to get the warm fuzzies. Yeah. Well, and how does that happen? It, you got to have people. Yeah. And your members and supporting areas around you are your backbone. And without them, you can't do it. Exactly. And guys, you know, I'm, I'm those of you who are listening to this podcast today, how, in whatever circumstance, if you want a competition hunting, it's a great game. It's so much fun. It can be, if done right, it's just a real rush. It's great. Yes. If you love a hound and you've got an ounce of competitiveness in you, you're going to love it out there. You're going to sweat bullets sometimes. You're going to be so nervous you feel like you're going to throw up. You're going to be so much of an adrenaline rush at sometimes. You just, you know, I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut of emotion. It It's just a fantastic game to play. But it doesn't just happen no you have to put in the work and when you put in that work and you do get that first win or whatever uh, you won't be able to sleep that night oh no because no way. i remember my first oh, yeah. big win and i was fired up and drove home and was up all day and i couldn't go to sleep i was just i was jacked <laughs> oh yeah well for sure well you're a guy that has chosen to be one of those that makes it happen. You know, there's an old saying, you know, there's some people that make things happen. There's others that, you know, sit back and watch it happen. There's others that say, well, what happened? You know, uh, you know, but yeah, you chose as I did a long time ago. And, and there was, you know, there was motivation. There was money involved. Uh, it was a living for me, which I was so blessed to have that kind of job for all those years. But, you know, you got to have it somewhere down here. Why am I doing these podcasts, Mark? I'm 77 years old, okay? I've been retired since 2011. If I didn't make preparations for my retirement then, I'm sure not going to get it now. <laughs> and why am I still doing this? Because I love it. That's the only reason. I told, told several people today out at the grounds there as I talked to different people. I said, my role now in coon hunting is cheerleader. I'm cheering for all you young guys, you new guys, you guys that are still physically able to enjoy the sport, to be able to do it as much as you can, as long as you can. And, that, and there's a lot of things that are, want to stop you from doing that. Okay, there and is. some of it can be your own ego and your own attitude toward your fellow hunters. Can be, S can be, but you know, and that's what you know. That's why I still stay involved in it because well, it's been my life. Yeah, and know? I always, when I listen to some of your podcasts, Steve, it's kind of an educational tool to also because you there's a lot of education bringing up some of the people you've interviewed and talked to and i mean some of these guys got experience that oh shadow whatever what i've got oh sure me and too. i mean i was fortunate but you know you could talk to 
Steve Burkholder or oh, JJ, yeah. and they could tell you things oh, of yeah. running Perina. And yeah. I was in the military. I could never do that because yeah. I might be gone yeah, 60 days exactly. or 90 days. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was fortunate. I had some young guys that lived around me and loved to coon hunt. And they would just come and get a dog, get a tracking collar and a tracking system and load a dog box up. And they kept my dogs hunted up. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, when I very, came very, home, very I was very fortunate. Sure. Absolutely. Well, okay. So basically the premise of this new association is to try to get back to the roots. Is Correct. that right? Is that a good? Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, what are right. What have you done so far? What are your plans? What where are we going with this? Well, we've got uh, I've got two events already scheduled in Ohio. Uh, we started our campaign uh, using a raffle so that we can build up funds. Uh, we're starting to take memberships. This was going to be our first major event, and uh, we came in Thursday morning at ten o'clock when they opened the gates. We set up a very beautiful table. I don't know if you got a chance to see it or not. I didn't. I didn't. But, uh, I mean, it was very nice. And um, and then in, we came in today, and at 10 o'clock this morning, we were told we needed to leave. Hmm. Uh, some member from the committee said that they only had or were going to give seven breed tables. And hmm. there was three blue tick organizations, so... We would have to share one table. And I was like, well, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm hopeful that you'll be able to work that out with the powers that be. And they, you know, a little understanding sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's easy just to say, well, you shouldn't have more than one. So, well, and you know, the and, funny part is, is there's three or four empty tables down there still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I, I don't know. I think there's a little bit of jealousy because, I mean, we did look good. And uh, <laughs> so I went over immediately after getting all packed up and talked to Alan uh, Gingrich. And I said, now, we are going to be allowed at the Winter Classic, right? <laughs> he said, yes, sir. He said, you just tell me what you need. And he said, now make it for you. Okay. But I'm showing Steve. But that, oh, yeah. That was our table. Oh, very, very, very nice. Very professional. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, well, um, you know, I don't know. There's a thing uh, within our sport uh, that is always been there, I guess. Yes. And it always will be. And I, I have no idea who made that decision or, or, or who's involved. And, and, you know, but that's the kind of thing, you know, look at your hometown. If you've got a Ford dealership, where do you put it? Right next door to the Chevy dealership. Yeah. Or right next door to the Toyota dealership. Because when people come out with a mindset to buy a car, they want to look around and everything. And Competition. Yeah. And if your product can stand up, then you're going to make the sale. Yep. As as opposed to somebody else. You know, so that mentality, I would hope that somebody, you know, I hate to use the word smarter. I'm not trying to act like I'm smarter than anybody. But 
you know, I, I think surely in time that that sort of thing would be worked I, out. And, you know, if I can just give you advice and everybody's got advice to give, I have a little saying on my answering, on my voicemail. It says, you know, where uh, opinions, are, uh, where advice is, uh, no, where opinions are freely given and advice is rarely taken. Yeah, there you, you go. Know? <laughs> so, as a joke, but you know, uh, anything new, people kind of push back against change. But if my product can't stand the, the 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 stress of competition, then I'm in trouble in this world. You well, know? if you can't if you can't take the heat, you got to get out of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully those kind of things will be resolved. But uh, you've you've talked to a guy that's a very open minded guy. A guy that I respect very much, and that's Alan at UKC. And I, I, I'm sure that Alan will. You know, they have a podcast uh, with UKC, mm-hmm. and it's a good one, the Hunting Ops Podcast. What does Alan do? He opens up the headquarters building at Autumn Oaks and says, "If you got a podcast, here's a place for you. Here's a booth for you." Come in, set up, do your podcast. Yep. You know, and, and you got to respect a guy like that. Oh, He's yeah. not afraid. And it's really not competition because there's going to be a blue ticker that's going to like your way better than they're going to like BBCHA's way or BBOA way. That way, there's going to be the next guy that comes down through the door that he's going to be loving the BBOA way, and and doesn't think yours will will ever succeed. That's human nature, and that's people. That's you know? why we have WalMarts and Macy's, and exactly. you know. So I, you know, my advice down through the years that seem that served me well is don't worry too much about the competition, and don't worry too much about the naysayers, yeah, because there's just going to be people that are unhappy. My daddy, yeah. my old pappy, taught me one time. He used to say, "Don't sweat the small stuff." Yeah, <laughs> and then he probably added one, "It's all small stuff." Yeah, he's like, and from what I, he said, from my view, he was a big man. He's like, he's like six foot four. He's like, and from my view, he said everything's small. Yeah. Well, okay. So you got a couple of events planned. Do you yes. have. Venues for those locations? Yes, we're going to be uh, uh, New Holland, Ohio, and I'm working on one for hopefully in Hillsboro, Ohio. Well, that's a good coon hunting area. Yep. Uh, Well, Walker Days was there last year. Down toward the Cincinnati (coughs) area more. uh, Allen Bridges and Brent Liscom are working on possible location in Comer, Comer, Georgia. Georgia. That's been a strong location for years. Yes. we have one possibly up in there. They have a club meeting uh, this coming week in up by Galax, Virginia. Oh yeah. Um, and then uh, I gave out several of our flyers today. Uh, hopefully, uh, up in um, here in South Carolina where they hold the state hunt. Oh, Darlington. Darlington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to laugh. The gentleman that walked up looked at me. He says, I know you. And I'm like, okay. He said, didn't you used to hunt blue dogs? And I said, yes, sir. He said, yeah, you used to come down to our club all the time when you were uh, up there at Fort Bragg. And I said, yes, sir, I did. 
so we got to talking blue dogs and they said they their club puts on the state hunt and they do a red bone sectional and he goes but we've been looking for something else to do and he goes uh you got any paperwork on how we do you guys do your hunts so i handed it to him and he's reading it over he goes i like this he goes i'm going to bring this up to the club next week there you go you have any questions my phone number's at the bottom give me a call sure so well how does someone that that says well you know something new that sounds good to me how do they get the information and how do they join your association they can join by sending our membership dues are twenty dollars Okay. Is uh, that an individual or do individual, you have a family membership? We have a $25 family membership. Okay. Uh, all the owners on dogs, if you're coming to our events, have to be a member. So if you've got three owners on your easy entry card, unfortunately, all three need to mm-hmm. be members. If it's just you on the card, then you just you have to be a member. Um, they can mail a check to us for either 20 for a single or 25 for a family that covers you, your wife, your children, everything up to age 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't require handlers to be members, just the owners of the dog. Okay. Uh, they can mail a check to the all American blue tick association and they can send it to my address, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which is Mark Halk or all American blue tick association at 1231 state route. 321 Sardinia, Ohio, and that's 45171. And if they're interested in putting on our events, I'll be glad to email anybody our Tier 1 and Tier 2 events because we have two two types of hunts. And uh, all they got to do is send an email to me requesting that information to Mark Hauk, H-A-U-C-K, 58 at yahoo.com. Okay. Do you do social media at all? Facebook. 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 Yes. How do, are you Mark Hauk on Facebook? Or we are All are, American I'm, Blue Tick Association on Facebook. Okay. And I have Mark Hauk on Facebook. Right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm in Facebook jail for today because <laughs> I, uh, yeah, you told I me get in jail that. all the time. I, I put on there on our website or our Facebook page about our raffle that we're doing to build our funds up so that yeah. we can do events. And uh, I look on Facebook, Steve, and I see people advertising tickets with guns for raffle and all this stuff. So I do it with just a picture. I don't even put the picture of the guns. And the next thing I know, I'm in <laughs> Facebook jail. I don't get it. I <laughs> uh, know. There's no way to figure it out, that's for sure. You never know what, you, what you're doing. I, I had to do a stint one time in Facebook jail. And, and when I, after it was over and they let me post again, I said, well, you know, I was in Facebook jail, and there was nothing but nice people in there. <laughs> Open-minded, clear-thinking people. You and, know what? Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mark, it's been a joy to have you on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate it. Do you have some hounds at home? Yes. Well, my wife does. Okay. Uh, She has her Hall of Fame male, Blake, and um, I bought his sister so I could hunt her. She's a nice little dog. Good deal. Both of them are all blue. Yeah. Uh, We had bought an all blue female from Sarah. um, up in Portland, Indiana, 
I can't remember her name. That's terrible of me. I do that all the time. It goes with the But we we bought her and raised a litter of pups Mm -hmm. and sold her back to Sarah and a little female called Josie, all blue. And we now have two pups Mm -hmm. out of that that Renee kept, a male and a female. And uh, they both made grand show champion and confirmation champions before they were a year old. Awesome. Awesome. So now they're getting beat up in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting those scars. On. Yes. <laughs> These are scars made while hunting are not to be yeah. uh, penalized. In no, I don't penalize them. <laughs> I don't either. Well, Mark, it's great. I do wish you the best of success with the All-American Blue Tick Association. Uh, I think there's certainly room for more. If it'll be a gateway for somebody that loves a blue tick hound, which would be my wife. She thinks the blue tick is the most beautiful hound of all. Uh, And, um, you know, if it will influence somebody to try a blue dog and try coon hunting and have a good time and get their kids involved and all of those things and add numbers to our you know, when we consider the whole hunting population in the United States is shrinking, there isn't a, 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 as many of us as there used to be years ago, and the number of treehound people among that number is infinitely small. So we need everybody, you know. Definitely. And it doesn't matter if you drive a Chevy or a Ford or a Dodge or if you like BBOA, BBCHA, or the All-American Blue – you still need to be counted among the numbers of coon hunters that are supportive Correct. and understand that we all have, in, at the end of the day, you know, we all have to pull together. That's we it. have to find a way. At the end of the day, we all matter. That's right. And that's the major thing. And the most important. Blue lives matter. That's right. Blue lives matter. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mark. It's been a delight. I really appreciate you taking the time from your family and all the activities here at the Grand American. It's been a good day today. They say rain tomorrow, but the report's getting better. It looks like it might be in the morning and might move out. I hope so. But, folks, if you're, of course, by the time you hear this, the Grand American will be history. These things run about a week behind, but uh, we we definitely appreciate uh, you listening. We thank our sponsor, W Hunting Supply. Uh, they can get, provide for you just about anything that you need in the line of, of hunting supplies for you or your hounds, and especially good technical support uh, for your electronic equipment. So W Hunting Supply, dusupply.com. That's going to be a wrap for that today from the Grand American in Orangeburg, South Carolina. I'm Steve Fielder, and if anybody asks you where I am, you just tell them that old war out cooner. He's gone to the dogs. <laughs>